Hi there. A quick message before we start. Don't forget that you can save money this winter when you book your ski hire at intersportrent.com and use the code SKIPODCAST. You'll get a guaranteed discount for all ski hire in France, Austria and Switzerland. And to make it even simpler, you don't even need to use that code. Just take the link in the show notes and your basket will automatically be reduced. So if you want to support the Ski Podcast, remember to book your ski hire within support and to use the code Ski Podcast or take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 172 of the Ski Podcast and thanks for joining us, listener. Today we're going to be finding out all about the famous oat route that takes you across the high mountains from Chamonix to Zermatt. Plus we'll be looking in detail at Verbier, one of the stops along the way. Now my name is Ian Martin. I'd like to introduce my guest today. Uh, Firstly, Katie Bamber. Hi Katie, how are you? Hi, very well, thanks. Great to have you back on the show. You were last on the show in episode 168 when you were telling us about van life in the Alps and uh, thoroughly recommend that listener if you haven't listened to that. And for the first time on the show, we have Tristan Kennedy. Hi, Tristan. Hi, Ian. Nice to be here. It's great to have you both here. So one of the first questions I like to ask my guests is when did you last ski or snowboard? And we were just chatting in the green room. I have a pretty sure I know what the answer is to this. But Katie, when were you last on snow? I was, uh, it was last week and I was in Jackson Hole in Wyoming. <laughs> Which is, yeah, I think you're probably going to uh, win if there's, uh, if there's a most spectacular place to have been skiing last. I've actually already read, you must have written and posted your piece very quickly. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but you wrote an article for The Telegraph about it. How was that trip? Um, yeah, it was incredible. I mean, it's um, it's been quite lean on snow in the Alps and out in the states and across the whole of north america it's just been wild by the end of january or near the end of january it jackson had like surpassed its snow totals from the season before and it just hasn't stopped since so that's like two extra months of snow and it's not quite got california's depths which is just you know been hammered but it's dry so very nice. yeah well in some respects the amount of snow they've had in uh, california has almost been too much you know sometimes there is a question can you have too much snow i think they possibly have there because you know I saw some pictures of people trying to dig out lifts and it looks impossible but uh Jackson Hole definitely won for the uh, bucket list uh Tris where are you uh, calling in from just now and when were you last on snow so I was last on snow yesterday um I'm actually in Switzerland at the moment I'm in uh Champery in the Hotel Suisse uh which is run by a former Olympic skier Camilla Berra uh, and her sister um, and we are, I'm here doing a story for Snow Magazine, which I work for a lot. I'm the editor of that. Um, and yes, we've been here in Switzerland visiting various resorts for the past week, uh, me and a, a filmer. Uh, unfortunately, we've not had anything like as much snow as Katie had in, uh, in Jackson. Um, yeah, I mean, as anyone who's visited this part of the Alps this winter will know, it's not been a vintage snow year. But I'm thinking your timing has worked out quite well because shortly before you uh, arrived, there would have been a good amount of uh, snow. So conditions on piste are okay? Yeah, conditions on piste are okay. I would say okay. Um, Definitely, yeah, it was raining a little bit up the hill yesterday. So um, they could be better. 
Okay, well, that's never so good. Uh, I will chip in. I also have been out on snow fairly recently. Last week, last weekend, I was in Verbier, and I'm going to be discussing that in a bit more detail further down. But the conditions are excellent there. I know that the uh, the, that rain-snow line that you were talking about uh, has been going a little bit too... uh, too high let's say and uh, you know rain coming in but i know that there is more snow uh, due to come in uh, this week uh, tris exactly they said um uh, yeah but i understand there's more snow on the way uh, tomorrow and in fact the freezing line will be going down to 800 they say in this valley so the village will be blanketed in snow after the weekend so anyone visiting next week should have a lovely winter wonderland we just didn't get lucky unfortunately yeah, I mean, it just hasn't been a very uh, consistent season uh, for snow in Europe. But, you know, conditions are pretty good uh, just now. We're going to come on to some snow reports a little bit later on. But just now, I just wanted to uh, chip in and say I've got some good and bad news. The bad news is that the Ski Podcast will not be retaining the best winter sports podcast uh, this year. But the good news is that's only because uh, the Sports Podcast Awards have discontinued that particular category. And uh, we have actually been shortlisted in the Best Wilderness Podcast uh, category. So, listener, if you like uh, the Ski Podcast and you enjoy uh, listening to us, can I please uh, recommend and ask you to go to uh, the sportspodcastawards.com. Uh, just uh, log in, go to the wilderness category and vote for us. Uh, you know, I'd really appreciate that. When we won that category last year, Best Winter Sports uh, Podcast, it was really exciting for me and it really was a reward for all the work I put in. So if you want to go along to sportspodcastawards.com uh, and just vote for us, it'll take a couple of minutes of your time. Now, the ski podcast is sponsored by Les Trois Vallées. It's the largest ski area in the world. Now, I have quite a lot of events coming up as we near the end of the season. There's an event called Winter Legacy going on in Courcheval. That's organised by Alexis Pantaro. And you can listen to the interview I did with him if you look through our back catalogue. Uh, the AJ Bell Challenge is coming up uh, in Val Terrens, uh, towards the end of uh, April. Uh, if you track back to episode 98, you can hear me chatting with Emily Sarsfield about that. But their biggest event of the season is the Le Travalet Enduro. And that is coming up uh, imminently. And uh, so I actually called up uh, uh, Tom Herbst and Olivier Desorti, who's uh, head of uh, Le Travalet, and we had a little chat about that event. Well, I'm delighted uh, this morning to be welcoming a couple of special guests who are going to be telling us about Le Trois-Vallées Enduro, which is a big event that takes place in Le Trois-Vallées next Sunday on the 2nd of April. Uh, I'm joined today by Olivier Desorties, who is Director of Le Trois-Vallées Association. Hi, Olivier. How are you? Hi, I'm okay. Excellent. And we're also joined by Tom Herbst, who works for Le Trois-Vallées in London and is a previous competitor in the event. Hi, Tom. Good morning, Ian. Now, Olivia, I'd like to start off with you. The Enduro is the big event in Le Trois-Vallées uh, during the season. I wondered if you could give us an idea what it, what it is, what the uh, concept is and what the different elements are. Yes, OK. So the Trois-Vallées Enduro... Uh, started in 2005, so that's the 19th edition. It's uh, more or less the, the biggest uh, ski amateur rendezvous in France. Uh, so it's very huge. We have usually more than 1,000 uh, skiers who are participating. And uh, they can register on our website and they form teams of three people. 
and we have three categories families so it's very much dedicated to families because it's very much fun so we have families uh, professionals or amateur if you come with some, some friends so um, briefly you 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 see one day a complete day because it's quite huge a complete day in the three valleys for this three valley enduro we've got 10 or 12 uh, stages or challenges in the three valleys. And so you go from Courchevel to Maribel to Les Menuis and to Val Thorens with lots of different uh, stages to do. I understood that it covered the whole of the Trois Valais and you're going into different resorts. How does it work yes. on the day itself? Can you start from any particular resort or do you need to start from a place in uh, a particular resort? No, it's okay. You can start from where, wherever you want, and that's one of the biggest advantage of the three valleys. Because uh, from from any resort you start from, you can see that it's very easy to go on ski to another resort. So, uh, so from Courchevel until Aurel, you can you can start from wherever you want. Yeah, and therefore you can do the the elements, the different parts of the competition in any order as well. Can you? Yeah, and it's very funny. I just tell you the four. The four news, uh, new stages we have, uh, Ian, if you don't mind. So, and and uh, we've got one in Courchevel, a new one, which is called Kilomètre Lancé. So, briefly, you go as fast as possible. Then in Meribel, we've got also a brand new uh, challenge because it's on the slope of the championship on the Rock de Fer. So, it's called Derby Rock de Fer. Uh, and also in Les Menuis, we've got the new pump on La Masse. La Masse, it's an extraordinary part of uh, Les Trois Vallées where you can ski, so that's new also. And in Val Thorens, a new one also on Le Bord, that's the, the, the spot center, which is in the center of Val Thorens. And, and there you can try uh, ski mountaineering this year. And we've got lots of other stages because this year we have 12 stages, which is very much, so you've got to be in a good shape to do all this. <laughs> Right. Okay. Uh, regular listeners to the show will know Le Board because I uh, went there and had a look at it uh, just before Christmas. Uh -huh. So I'll have to look up the uh, episode yeah. and put that into the show notes. And so I know you're saying you need to be uh, fit, but it is generally the point of it is it's a fun event. It's something to take part in. Yeah, it's important for us. The most important for us is not so much the competition, but a fun day for all the skiers. And that's it. And we are very famous for that. Uh, and then um, the, the, the ones who are, who are winning, uh, they get a very, very, very good uh, gift because they win Salomon Skis. That's our partner. So we've got 36 pairs of ski to, to offer to the winners. But also for those who don't win, um, they, they, they can win uh, ski passes for next year, yeah, or ski mask or other gifts. And the best gift, you know what it is, Ian? Uh, is, it gonna be, is it going to be cheese? <laughs> no, no, you've got some cheese, yes, you're <laughs> right. But the best, the best gift, and that's, that's a tombola, as we say. I, I mean, it's not especially the winners. Tombola, and the best, the best gift is one stay week in the three valleys for next year with accommodation and ski passes and transfers. So that's, that's the best you can, you can have. Brilliant. Well, it, it sounds excellent. Now, we do have the advantage of having Tom with us today. He's, uh, I think you're taking part on Sunday and you have taken, uh, part, uh, taken part in the Enduro before. When, when you did it, Tom, where did you start from? And 
Olivier mentioned, you know, you need to be quite fit. How tiring was that day? Yeah, so I I, I, I did it in, in just before COVID in 2019. And we, we, we started off in Maribel and we went from, from there. The, the day that we did it, it was actually quite tricky because it was quite foggy on the day. But a, a few things to, to point out to people is, you know, Enduro is great for parents thinking of what to do with the kids at Easter. Or if you're going as a group uh, to the Three Valley system with your friends, uh, you know, mo most of us, when we go on our one or two week ski holidays, we, we don't really get a chance to do ski challenges in a fun race format. And, uh, you know, the Enduro is all about having fun. It's, it's as competitive as you want to make it. Um, you know, what kind of level of skier do you need to be? I would say if you can ski a red piste, you're going to be absolutely fine. Um, you don't have to do all the stages, actually. Um, you, you score points when you do the stages. Um, and as Olivier has mentioned, they're all around the whole Three Valley system, which is, you know, 600 kilometres of run. So you're not, you're not timed between the stages. Uh, it's only when you get there. So you don't have to kind of hoon around between all the different 12 um, uh, challenges. Uh, you're only timed when you get there. The other thing is, um, you know, you get, a, you get a free lunch as part of your ticket price. They say there's no uh, such thing as a free lunch. Ticket price. It's not <laughs> very much. You know, if you book before March the 30th, it's 29 euros to do, to, to do it. You get a bib. You, you name your team. We bullishly went for Team GB. Uh, we didn't do very well, um, mainly because I had a couple of slow slow bods in my group. But it didn't really matter that the point was uh, taking part. Uh, you have to wear a helmet. Um, when you stop at lunch, and there's a lunch in Meribel, and there's a barbecue in Valterans this year, you're going to see screens uh, with your team name and your time so it's you know it's fun to see where you where you're scoring but there you go i mean it, it was a lot of fun uh I, i'm looking forward this year to doing the biathlon which is like an air rifle shooting thing a bit like in the olympics that was a lot of fun border cross is a good laugh as well you're all going down together jostling down the slopes um can't recommend it enough come and give it a go that's great. And as it goes, I have a feeling that um, one of the people that you're doing it with this weekend is a journalist called Catherine Murphy. Is that right? Yes, I'm doing it with Catherine and I'm doing it with a, with a couple of other um, journalists as well. There's, we're we're going to be out of the, the group of three. Yeah. The reason I say that is I have her scheduled to be on the next episode of the podcast, uh, which we're recording next week. So we'll be able to chat to her and find out what she thought. And, and, and uh, you know, whether you held her back, Tom. This <laughs> <laughs> no, no, is just not possible. It's not possible. <laughs> cool. That's brilliant, guys. Thank you very much. And have a great time this weekend at the Three Valleys Enduro. Thanks, Ian. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. So I mentioned uh, earlier uh, we have some snow reports. Let's start off in Courcheval, see what conditions are going to be having for the uh, Travelay uh, Enduro. We've got Alex Irwin from 150 Days of Winter reporting from Courcheval. We've also got Bethany Garner. Uh, telling us what the latest conditions are in Cormayeur. And although this was recorded a little while ago, Simon Burgess, who's uh, reported for us on several occasions, actually skied up in Yad Moss in England uh, not so long ago. So I thought it's still good to have a listen to what it's like skiing in England. Hi, Ian. Alex from 150 Days of Winter with a snow report from Courchevel in the Three Valleys. 
Last week saw much-needed fall of snow revitalising the bare piece. A recent run down the Coombe de Villon piste in Meribel revealed some great snow even for the end of March. After a spot of rain today, another batch of snow is forecast for Sunday as the freezing level drops down the valley. If it carries on like this with little regular storms, there will be plenty of snow for April and the end of season. So get out there early for first lifts and enjoy the snow before it gets heavy in the afternoon and you can do some serious après ski in the sunshine. While I put down my glass of rosé, I wish you all a good end of season. If you get bored, feel free to peruse my YouTube channel. Ciao. Hi Ian, it's Bethany sending you a snow report from Cormaia in Italy. So today, Wednesday, was a very spring-like day. Um, but I've got to say Cormaia have done a great job with their piece. And all the pieces we skied were skiing really well. Uh, but slush, a bit slushy by the end of the afternoon. But um, all morning and even into lunchtime, uh, they were, they were, most of them were really great. Um, and there was even a little bit of kind of spring powder up in the Eula Arp area. So, yeah, it's, it's not bad. And you can actually ski down to all the way down to the bottom nest at Dolon, which I was surprised about, but they've got a strip of white snow down to the bottom. Um, and it looks like there's some snow forecast at the weekend. It's hard to say at the moment where the snow rain limit will be, but I think there will definitely be a bit of fresh high up. And, yeah, it's going to keep skiing well, I think, for the next few weeks till the end of the season. So if you're heading to Cormaia, uh, I think it's a, a great bet. And yeah, enjoy. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hi, Ian. Simon here, reporting on the recent snowfall across the north of England. Over the past few days, Rays, Allen Heads, and Yad Moss have all been open. I was fortunate to get to Yad Moss on the 11th of March, where the tow ran until 5 pm. The snow was good in parts, patchy in others, and there was some decent windblown powder to be found. Unfortunately, the snow has not lasted, and although the tow will run today, conditions are far from favourable. Hopefully, we'll get more snow and a few more days on the tow this winter, but for now, that is all. Hi, Ian. Sean here from the Haute Pyrenees, calling in with a snow report. Uh, well, uh, most stuff around here is closed. We've got, I'm in Lucent-Sauveur, we've got three, four resorts relatively close. Uh, Gavani, Luzardiden, Grand Tourmalet, which includes the Pic du Midi, and Cotteret. Uh, Gavani and Luzardiden have now closed. Uh, Grand Tourmalet is open till the 2nd of April. And Cotteret is, which is a nice little north facing bowl, so it keeps the snow well. They are open until the 23rd of April. So anyone looking for a bit of spring skiing uh, can sort of head over there. Um, yeah, anyway, so last week coming up for uh, Grand Tourmalet, uh, I'm not sure it'll be great. They're announcing a bit of snow on Sunday, so I'm planning to head out for a ski on Monday. Uh, conditions up high, I think, are all right. Uh, spring skiing, best to get out in the morning, um, you know, nice and easy end of season. Okay, have a good day. Bye. Uh, I mentioned a little bit earlier that I was out in Verbier last weekend, and that was such a, a great trip. Firstly, as listeners know, I like to travel by train. So I went out by train, and one of the reasons I picked Verbier is because of that link between where the uh, the train comes in in Le Chable. You can literally just walk across the road and then catch the gondola up to a resort. 
And uh, so, you know, that final section, sometimes you're going to some resorts a bit more complicated if you're going to, uh, let's say, Val d'Isere from Bourg Saint-Maurice or you're going to Mirabel Courcheval from Moutier. But here you can just go all the way up into resort without a problem at all. And I've blogged about that on Ski Flight Free. I'll put a link into it in the show notes and I've done a, a little video about it. Um, there was quite a lot of fresh snow in the build up to me uh, being there. I got there on the Thursday and they had, as you'll hear a bit later on, 175 centimetres of fresh snow in the previous week. So I went into uh, uh, Intersport, Philippe Rue Intersport in the centre of town there. And I asked them for something pretty wide uh, underfoot. And they gave me uh, some Rosinol Black Ops sender skis, which uh, I had a little check with Al. And I'll put a link to uh, his review in there. That's uh, Al Morgan from Ski Kit uh, Info. They were absolutely fantastic, 187 centimetres long, 106 underfoot. And they were just what I needed for the type of skiing uh, that we were doing, which I was very lucky. I was actually with there with a bunch of friends who were celebrating a 50th birthday. It wasn't a press trip, quite uh, unusually, for one of my uh, trips to the Alps. So I was kind of like, um, you know, off the clock, so to speak. And lucky enough to go out with a couple of people and do some really good off-piece. But the background to that is that that huge amount of snow that came down uh, did present some very uh, dangerous conditions. And the day I arrived on the Wednesday, I didn't have the opportunity to ski because I got in quite late. But there were some serious avalanches that day and unfortunately uh, one fatality. I'll put a link to uh, a little video, one of those uh, avalanches. Uh, but uh, uh, I think everyone who's thinking about going back country hopefully takes the precautions. We had some superb uh, skiing and went straight out there. Robin, who's reported for us, from uh, from Verbier uh, before and given us several snow reports. I'd never actually skied with him before. You know, we uh, we talked over the phone, so but he didn't really know what kind of skier I was. That he very kindly uh, let me join uh, him and one of his friends, uh, Richard. You could tell they were testing me out on the first run, where uh, they said they're like this is going to be our warm up run, and it was uh, quite a, a steep uh, off piece run. But I guess they wanted to kind of check whether it was going to uh, work out. But we had a brilliant day skiing, skiing all over the back country. So I, I asked Robin afterwards about Verbier's kind of position as a, as a destination for off-piece skiing. So let's have a listen to that. Right. We're sitting here uh, in the 1936 restaurant in Verbier. I'm enjoying a large demi-panache and I reckon I've earned it because I've been incredibly fortunate to be taken out today by uh, Robin Shah. Uh, some of you will recognise his voice because he's given us a number of snow reports uh, from Verbier. Uh, hi, Robin. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> hi, Ian. Um, I really want to thank you for taking me out today. I mean, we have just skied so much off-piste around Verbier. I feel like I've covered a lot of ground. But there is something about off-piste, uh, you know, backcountry in Verbier. It's that kind of resort, isn't it? Yeah, um, Verbier is known for its off-piste, and if I'm honest with you, um, it is it is it is fabulous for its off-piste. I wouldn't necessarily recommend piece skiers to come here, but if you if you love lift-served off-piste, then oh, I can't think of anywhere better to ski. I think that was one of you know when we were talking on one of the chairlifts earlier, we were talking about lift-serve off-piste versus off-piste, and you were saying, oh, yeah, if you want to do that comparison with Chamonix. They just, 
it's so much better here in Verbier in terms of what you can reach more easily. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the Verbier area is really well connected. So um, with the three big mountains, so Atala, Montjolais, and Montfort, um, there is you've got the itineraries which are controlled as well, so uh, give you a bit of safety if you're not so experienced. And then for those who are more experienced, there are just there are just countless different routes that you can get as you get more experience. You find uh, trickier routes to get into, um, routes which uh, maybe um, you know a little bit steeper. Um, and just you know, as you get more experienced, you can you can just keep on finding new places. And I think one of the one of the great things about it. I mean, we've covered lots of different type of uh, uh, terrain today. But there is that mix. You know, you were showing me a couple of uh, runs there, which are a great way to start someone off if, they, if they've never skied powder before. You know, here's a little playground that you can test yourself on before you build yourself up to those uh, steeper and slightly harder to access areas. Yeah, yeah, we, we, uh, we skied mini golf. Uh, <laughs> I was telling you it's my kid's favorite. Uh, straight off one of the few T-bars, or T-bar, one of the few Pommer lifts yeah. in Verbier. Right up at Col de Gentiel at 2,900 meters. Like, you know, the snow was fantastic up there, wasn't it? Yep, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, you've only got you've only got uh, it's a small area, but there's, there's lips to jump off. There's deep snow there. It's super safe. Uh, you know, I've been taking my kids there since they were four or five. <laughs> what a great place to learn to ski uh, in powder. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think. We skied such a, a huge uh, area today. I couldn't really think back uh, and say exactly where they were. We obviously had a mix of uh, conditions. Some of it was getting a little bit uh, crusty because it's quite warm today. Yeah. Uh, but those early runs that we did in perfect powder, and we're one day after, effectively, everything opened up uh, yesterday. I mean, they were yeah. just perfect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's, you know, we're back half of... March now, so the sun is strong. So as soon as the sun gets on, you know, south-facing stuff, um, it does get, you know, gets kissed. But the north-facing stuff here at altitude stays good for quite a while. So we still, even though people have been skiing at the last couple of days, yesterday was like a bluebird day, and Verbi gets well skied on a bluebird day, right? But we could still go out and find almost untracked spots. We had to work a little bit for them. But, um, <laughs> And, uh, but we found some nice untracked. You mentioned yesterday was a bluebird day, and we got to bring it up. I mean, we saw a lot of avalanches that were set off uh, yesterday, and uh, my understanding was that there was certainly at least one fatality, some uh, injuries. Obviously, in terms of how you choose the different routes, you guess you put a lot of thinking into that. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that's something that you learn with experience. Um, particularly when you know when you know an area, you see where the avalanches are, and also it, it, also you see where the avalanches are when the storms come in from different directions, right? So today, for example, we talked about uh, we've had a lot of snow, right? We've had like 175 centimeters of snow in the last seven days on a base which had been pretty dry for about three or four weeks. So that means there's lots of like facets, weak layers in the snow, and then there's a ton of snow on top of that. And uh, where we saw those avalanches, we saw them um, on the, uh, the kind of north faces, 
and we saw them on the places where the wind had blown and blown loads of snow in there. So when we were skiing today, we were, we were basically looking, we were staying off those faces, right? And we could see where the avalanches were. Um, and so with your experience, you know where the avalanches go, depending on the winds and the storms, etc. And then you're just trying to choose areas where you really can minimize the risk. There is still always risk, right? So then what do you do? You know, you make sure you go one by one. You make sure everybody's equipped. Um, you make sure at the top you decide um, which route are we going to take? Where's a safe place to stop on the way down? So there's like a number of there's a number of things that you've got to think about and you've got to make sure your groups um, you know is ready. You are, you are always trying to minimize the risk. Cool. Well, I've got to say, uh, Robin, I've had like a fantastic uh, morning. I would never have done uh, the sort of skiing that we did today if it wasn't for you. So thanks very much for taking me and sharing your knowledge of, uh, of all the great uh, backcountry and off-piece that Verbia has to offer. Ian, it was a pleasure. You, you were... Uh, I didn't know what to expect when you arrived. I thought, here's this guy coming out from the UK. He told me I'm hiring some skis. I thought, this is not a good sign. And uh, so, so my mate uh, Rich whispered in my ear, well, we better do a practice run on the uh, Lactavo Ridge. And after I saw you do the first couple of turns, I thought we're going to have a good day. This guy can ski. So uh, very good. So cool. It was a pleasure skiing with you. I really Excellent. Thanks Come back very again. much. <laughs> So Verbier, you know, evidently, uh, I think most people know, it really is uh, just a, an off-piece backcountry uh, playground. There are so many different uh, descents there, whether you're looking for um, you know, big pitches or whether you're looking for uh, steeps. I don't think Robin mentioned it there. One of the things we skied was uh, something called a Three Fingers uh, Couloir, which comes down from Atalas, which is definitely one of the steepest sections i've ever been down before when it, when we were near the top robin said to me how, how good's your uh, side slipping and i thought that seems like a strange question to be asking but actually wow i mean we went down this cool while which was marginally wider than the length of our skis uh and it was really pretty thrilling i had a, a brilliant time and the next day i had the opportunity to ski with uh, warren smith who despite knowing him for 20 years it's the first time we've ever uh, gone skiing together and even a couple of days uh, after that fresh snow he used his knowledge uh, of verbier to sniff out uh, some some fresh powder and uh, we skied just past the cabane uh, de tortin which is being remade at the moment so like, i had a little chat with warren as well well, I'm sitting here in a gondola on our way back up with Warren Smith from the Warren Smith Ski Academy in Verbier. And uh, very kindly, it's just uh, we still managed to find some fresh powder two, three, four days after the last fresh snow. And it really just has impressed upon me. Just Verbier is such an off-piste backcountry resort. I and mean, what do you think gives it that reputation? I think, I think it's had a, a few different factors. Like back in the day, you know the guys here in the seventies, like the John Faulkners and you know Marco doing pictures with him, and they brought a certain, I think, vibe and then energy to the place, which which attracted other free skiers. So there's a free skiers themselves have come here, but they've also free skiers have come here obviously because of the terrain as well. So there's there's a few factors in it, and when you look at Verbia, you've got 400 kilometers of really good, well the four valleys, 400 yeah. kilometers of really good skiing. But you've got about 400 kilometers off piste. And when you look at those piece maps and you really get sort of scale out where you look over the back of Montfort, the, the bowls around, you know, Jean-Cien and, and all the areas around Montfort, it, it, it's quite an incredible place. But also 
you can tour up to some areas within no time and find some fantastic, really quiet spots, sometimes even touring over towards Fiona, you know, really. Yeah, when we were up at Montfort uh, earlier, looking at a magnificent view from there, and way over on the far side, yeah. you pointed out some tracks for a, a big, I guess it must, have, it must have been a glacier or something that people were going up to uh, come back down again. Yeah, there was a there was a tour that people made to get over to the other side of Back of Montfort to Wings of Icarus, um, and it's a, it's a really popular one. And I was actually, it's quite early in the day in a way to put those tracks in because of a lot of, a lot of things sliding so yeah well we've seen a huge number of slides that's for sure but that's really interesting that ratio you're talking about of backcountry to piste yeah you know that's really what verbier has to offer and yeah. you know really appreciate you showing me around and showing a bit more of it oh mate we've got the goods <laughs> thanks a lot warren no worries mate so it's been quite a long time since I went to, uh, since I've been to uh, verbier and I guess a few things struck me backcountry skiing amazing it's you know I go to Zermatt reasonably often it's quite an expensive place Verbier is pretty expensive uh, as well. And like I say, this wasn't a press trip. Uh, so, you know, I did um, You just sense that sort of wealth uh, all over the place uh, when you're there. Um, have you sort of noticed that before on previous trips, uh, Tristan? Yeah, I think the thing that I always remember about Verbier is it's the only ski resort I've ever been to where one of the ski schools is sponsored by a hedge fund. There's, I can't remember which ski school it is, but... They have Aberdeen Asset Management across the back of their jacket. And I think that kind of tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, and actually up on the uh, mountain itself, you know, lots of resorts have uh, like a skier board across and things like this. The the skier board across in uh, Verbier is sponsored by an international school in Verbier. So it might just be that if you happen to be skiing there, you are considering sending your children to an international school or I think a, a baccalaureate uh, option, then that's there for you too. What about you, Katie? Um, you've been to Verbier before, I take it? I have, yeah, I've been... Uh, maybe two or three times, three times. And each time I've been just by bad luck. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think it just speaks about the terrain there, which is insane, obviously, insanely good. But each time I've been, I've lost a member of group to like an ACL or a broken shoulder or something. Okay. And what about um, the the kind of off-piste? I don't mean the backcountry side of things. I mean the resort itself and the feeling in the resort. It certainly changed a lot from when I was there when I was a a season worker. Like a lot of resorts, I I guess, there's probably fewer season worker bars, but you know the Apre is still pretty good there, I thought. I'm always interested by Verbia because you're right, it is very wealthy, but because of the incredible backcountry terrain, you also get really serious skiers there. So I've got a friend who likes to divide resorts up into either he says they're either Gore-Tex resorts or they're fur resorts. And he puts Verbier in the Gore-Tex resort category because despite the, the sort of wealth that you were talking about, Ian, this incredible terrain attracts really, really kind of serious gears. And that spills over into the Apre, um, the Apre kind of scene. So if you go to the Bar Montfort, yeah, it costs you a lot to drink there. But, um, but the vibe is kind of serious skier vibe, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd back that up for, for sure. Um, based on the last few years uh, I've done of skiing, and I haven't I haven't skied in Chamonix uh, much recently, but the the overall quality of skier that I saw, there's some really, really good skiers out there. I mean, it's been a while since I've been in a resort and I've just been going up a chairlift and watching multiple people backflip a bit, backflipping off cliffs. It doesn't normally happen. 
uh, you know, and it is the destination for the Free Ride World Tour uh, finals. They're actually coming up uh, this weekend as we're recording now, and I'm hoping to have a feature on it in the uh, next episode. That's on the uh, the very famous Bec de Ross. Uh, it'll, it's going to depend a little bit on the snow as to whether or not they're going to be able to do that on Saturday uh, as planned. But yeah, there are some there are some you know extremely good skiers there, and I love that uh, option of Gore-Tex or uh, or fur. I'm already thinking in my mind where I'd categorize you know other other resorts you know you've got to eat out somewhere we were in uh, self Cape and I did eat in some really really you know nice restaurants as I mentioned we were on a 50th uh, kind of weekend with quite a lot of other families uh, from Brighton and I, I ate in uh, two which I definitely uh, go back to one called La Rouge and one called La, La Nonna uh, in the center of town have either of you been to either of those is that the one with some good apres before it gets to nice evening time for sure. I mean, they often have DJs uh, there. I did meet one of the DJs called Nico, who plays there on a regular basis. Actually, theoretically, you can ski there as well. It's at the bottom of one of the slopes. But the food in both of those two places was uh, excellent. Uh, and really, you know, once you get over, I think when Jim and, I, Jim and I were on the show together, we often used to start referring to Swiss francs as just chuffs. If you start, conf- you know, calculating the whole time how much everything is costing you and converting it back into uh, sterling then it can seem very expensive but if you just think of everything as being chuffs then it diminishes it a little bit and it doesn't it doesn't feel so bad but you know i really enjoyed the eating out both in those two places particularly la nonna which is right in the center of town there and the apre yeah i did go to barman four which is good. Went to Ferra Cheval, and you're right. They did have that kind of apres ski season worker kind of atmosphere that um, you know, I guess you'd probably struggle to find in someone like Corsival 1850 these days. Um, that kind of apres season worker thing definitely feels more pronounced around the Freeride World Tour weekend. Like when you have all those incredible skiers and snowboarders rolling into town, that's a that's a really incredible vibe. And um, yes, it's also an incredible contest to watch live. I think there's a lot of uh, freestyle these days, you know, can, can get a bit um, bamboozling. A lot of it's actually quite confusing to the, to the sort of untrained eye, like whether someone's spinning a 12 or a 1400 is, it can be quite hard to follow, but watching the best backcountry skiers and snowboarders in the world tear down that Beck de Ross face is something that I think everyone can understand. It's really, it's really kind of visceral and bloody hell they go fast. Like, that's it's completely insane the backflips off the cliffs is one thing but just the sheer speed that they take those lines is is nuts yeah well i'm looking forward to watching that uh i don't think this podcast will get published until monday uh, so it may have happened but it looking at the the weather report i think it could be that it gets deferred to tuesday we'll We'll see. They obviously need to be uh, very mindful of the of the you know situation with the new snow and possible avalanches out there. But um, either way, uh, Verbier, you know, fantastic trip. Um, I do have an idea that I'd like to go back there again and see if I could uh, you know write an article on how you ski Verbier on a budget. Um, mm. Possibly stay in Le Chable or something like that. But uh, I'll tackle that one in due course. Now. Verbier is actually uh, fits in with our next section quite well because it is one of the stops uh, on the Oak route. 
And uh, the Oak Route, listener, if you're not familiar with it, it's basically a, uh, a high mountain ski touring route. You could walk it in uh, summer that goes from Chamonix uh, to Zermatt. I think the first ski crossing was made in 1903. So it's been going for over 100 uh, years. And I particularly wanted to have both uh, Katie and Tristan on the podcast this time around uh, because they both had experience of it in, in different ways. I'd like to start off with uh, yourself, Katie, because... You mentioned uh, when you were last on in episode uh, 168 that you did do uh, the Oat Route. And that was last season, is that right? That's it, mid-April 2022. Right. And so it was mid-April and you did Chamonix to Zermatt because everything I read about it does say Chamonix to Zermatt. Do people ever go Zermatt to Chamonix? Um, I believe they do. People ask me which way round I did it. And as I was finishing and coming into Zermatt, you can see the PDG setting up, which happens every other year, and they were all training setting up. So they do it the other way, but that's obviously much more extreme than the the four or five day classic hate route verbiate. For sure, and PDG, just for the benefit of the listener who might not know, is a Patrie de Glacier, which is a race that goes from Verbier to Zermatt. You tend to do it in uh, pairs. If you go through the uh, night, I've I know a few people who've done it. It's on my list. Got to find someone. If you're a listener, you fancy uh, teaming up to do that? That that's one to add to my uh, list at some point. And and Katie, so you, you went in mid-April. Um, I've got a lot of questions uh, about it. I know Tristan, I'm going to bring you in as well because you've looked at some different variants. But firstly, how how long does it take to do that, Katie? Well, actually, I did actually start in Verbier in the end. So it was meant to be a five-dayer. And last winter was a bit like this winter. It was a bit you know, short of snow and a bit warm early on in spring. So um, I was hanging around in Chamonix for a few days when luckily there was an amazing snowstorm which dropped a metre and a half maybe up high. So we had a few like rest days and, you know, like where the mountain could settle. And then there was there happened to be a fire in our first hut. I think it was the Triant hut, a miniature fire, but it basically was off for just that one night. So we did some Chamonix skiing and then ended up driving to Verbier and setting out from there. Six Would it be six days, five nights, something like that? That's it. Yeah. Most I did mine with um, a kind of a, a it's not a tour operator. It's just a company in Chamonix that guides you through it. And they normally take six days. And that's one day, one or two days in Chamonix, kind of testing your skills and making sure you're ready. And Tris, can I come to uh, you? Uh, I don't think uh, like uh, Katie, you haven't done the full oat route, but you've done ve- different kind of variants around there. Yeah. What, what's your experience? So, so I did I did something um, for a story for The Telegraph at a similar time to Katie. I was there uh, early May last year. And this was something that they were launching as a new oat root variant so there are various variants like the reverse one Zermatt Chamonix is is one that that Katie was just talking about um there are also sort of various ways you can go around the Grand Combin I think there's there's a sort of classic and there's the historic uh and there's one because normally I think the classic you would end up driving a section between after your first days down from Chamonix to Verbier anyway is that right Katie yeah, that's it. So anyway, there's there's all these different variants, but it's been about 40 or 50 years since someone launched a new one and said, this is a variant of the Oru. So the one I did was put together by the Guide de Verbier uh, in collaboration with guides from the Grand Pé de Saint-Bernard and the Valle d'Aosta um, in Italy. And it was essentially taking a lot of the hardest pitches of the classic route 
and putting them in a big loop around kind of pretty much all around the Grand Combin, which is um, the peak that, that sort of sits above Verbier, um, to create a new six-day old route. Um, so it was six days, five nights, and according to our guide, at least, was gnarlier than uh, than than the sort of traditional old route. That's that's what he was <laughs> pitching us on. It was certainly hard work. It was certainly hard work. Well, okay. I mean, that's quite interesting. You mentioned hard work. So that brings me on to another one of my questions. Uh, Katie, how fit, how difficult is it? Like on the two sides, technically and physically, how fit do you need to be and what kind of skills do you need? You do need a good level of fitness, but it kind of surprised me what the challenges were going to be on the Hope Route. I mean, I was warned and told that it's, I mean, it's much less skiing than you think it's going to be. So I'm interested in Tristan's version because there's very little like ski descents. And I don't know if that was just the year I did it and there was you know not as much snow. Um, and it's a traverse, right? So it's, you're, you're basically just, you know, you head up high and then it's kind of across. You need fitness and you need to enjoy touring, but it's a different yeah. kind of fitness. It's endurance. Yeah. I would absolutely agree with that. So I, I'm actually a snowboarder for my sins. I never learned to ski. So I was doing it on a split board with a photographer friend of mine, Dan Medhurst, who is also a split boarder. Um, and I think the guide was slightly surprised when we rocked up uh, saying, saying we were going to do it on our split boards. I quite like touring up uphill. Um, Dan, the photographer, goes uphill so that he can get to fresh descents. And he was a little bit shocked that there was a lot of uphill and a lot of flat. Um, and some amazing descents. I mean, don't get me wrong, there were a couple of kind of thousand metre plus um, pitches where we were riding down in all in one long go. But um, yeah, I'd agree with Katie 100% that you have to enjoy touring. But then you sort of should anyway, because touring is 90% going uphill, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. for every hour you go uphill, you get what, like three minutes coming down if you're lucky? I think I think one thing that um, I was surprised at is I've done a lot of touring before and kind of touring staying in the huts before, maybe not multi, maybe two days, but not multi-day beyond that. Um, but I've never really done glacier touring. And I think that was the biggest surprise that it's the Hope Route is high risk because it's glaciers. And again, it was a low snow year. So the crevasses were open and they were everywhere. Uh, it's pretty spooky up there. Um, because you can see all the crevasses again. I guess it's, you know, less scary when you can't see them, but um, it's a completely different kind of touring. You know, you're kind of roped up for sections and, yeah, the dangers are different. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree on the sort of danger. The crevasses are also, I mean, what struck me was just spectacular. I think I was watching partly through through the lens of Dan's camera as well and watching him just get excited about the light, the early morning light on the ice. So I assume you would have done the same, Katie. You you sort of leave the huts at 4 a.m. some days just to make sure you're in, at the next hut before the snow starts getting soft and unsafe. And so you have, like, head torches playing on the blue ice and then, you know, the early morning, the dawn kind of alpine glow uh, coming over the glaciers. And you're right there. You're right kind of next to these huge walls of ice. Um, it's It's scary, but also super cool. That, that, that is great. I'm getting so many questions coming through my mind as the two of you are uh, talking. I mean, you mentioned, I think, so people uh, kind of understand. You do tend to start very early in the day and finish pretty early in the day as well. So you can be arriving at the next refuge or your next night's uh, accommodation around lunchtime, right? 
Yeah, some days we finished. I mean, we I think our first day we started out at seven and then it went back an hour each day because it really feels like a race against the sun, not only because of snow quality. And I guess the risk gets higher, but it's so I just my lasting memory is, first of all, the views, because you really are at the top of the world. And the second is just how hot it is. It feels kind of like you're melting from the inside. I burnt the top of my hands one day and they still haven't really got their feeling back. <laughs> right. OK. But you, this is because you're going uphill, right? So, you you know, you're working uh, hard and uh, you might be at altitude, but the, there's nothing between you and the sun. It's beating down on you, right? Exactly. Yeah. So set off early and try and stay in the in the shadow and in the shade, because I think at 930, that's when it starts to get seriously hot. But then you you have these lovely um what I remember is that you have these lovely long afternoons where you get to the hut and you've you've done a, a massive workout like usually <laughs> what close on sort of two thousand vertical meters and it's only kind of two p.m. and then you eat a leisurely lunch and sit on a terrace uh, well trying to protect yourself from the sun I suppose certainly wearing sun cream and sun hat but but also just soaking it up and enjoying that kind of um. I guess it's the endorphin rush, isn't it? After you've after you've done sort sort of exercise, there were days where we'd get to the hut, and I felt like I'd run a half marathon that morning. It was it was a similar kind of vibe. Um, yeah, I mean, but it's glorious, isn't it? That's the payoff to me. You know, I love the exercise side of things. Yeah, the descents are great, but it's spending that time in the high mountain where it's quiet. You know, you're away from the lift system. You can just uh, you know enjoy the views. And and just to kind of uh, clarify, because I know different routes and things do it in different ways but um the the actual accommodation where you're staying overnight might be useful to give people an idea of how refuges work okay yeah well i um like i said i've stayed at kind of um mountain refuges before or sometimes you can kind of do a little day tour out from a resort and eat at them but these these ones i stayed at the Prefleury and then the Deeth and then vignette which are all pretty famous ones and they're seriously remote outposts. I don't, I can't understand how they're built. You know, one of them, is it the vignette? It's, it's essentially on this enormous cliff. It's kind of, it's kind of, yeah, built on a ridgeline, um, the most beautiful place I've ever been. So those afternoons when you get there before lunch and you spend all day like playing cards or reading, sitting in the sun, it's seriously beautiful. And generally, the way that they uh, work is that, uh, you know, it's dorm accommodation, uh, isn't it? It's pretty basic. You know, if you're uh, used to your five star accommodation, this probably is going to be a bit of a, a shock for you in that respect. And although food is provided, typically, depending what exactly what uh, refuge you're staying at, uh, there's there's no choice on the menu. You get what you're uh, given, right? But the, the food, in my experience, was generally excellent. Maybe it's just that you've worked out such a hunger that, that anything would taste <laughs> good. But I think gen, genuinely really, really tasty. The dorm accommodation, obviously, yes, if you're used to staying in your own hotel room, takes some getting used to. It, there's, uh, it does give it a bit of atmosphere. You get chatting to people um, very easily over dinner. You tend to eat at sort of long tables. And that's quite nice. And you're usually, you know, you sort of compare notes on what exactly it is you're doing and that kind of thing um there's also a sort of general atmosphere of fog and smell because <laughs> quite a lot of these refugees don't have don't have showers um we stayed in one that didn't even have running water they had snow melt um so even even um the water uh yeah the water supply was sort of limited um so yes there's there's that's put up with and you're sharing a room obviously with a bunch of strangers uh so the two things that i wish someone had told me 
before um before I went was uh make sure your bag is as light as possible because like Katie said it's super sweaty and and, and hot and hard work and two make sure there's earplugs in your bag because someone is guaranteed to snore in in your refuge dorm yeah I mean I think that's a um a really good point about weight i was going to come on to the type of uh, equipment uh, that you need once i uh, can't remember what episode it was but um when we had al morgan from skeet info on the podcast before i think the actual equation that he explained to me is that um one kilogram on your feet is worth five kilograms on your back so although uh, it's kind of important to try and make sure that you don't have uh, you know too much uh, heavy stuff in your backpack itself the equipment that you're using for touring and for going uphill is going to make a lot of difference and I'm guessing perhaps I, I'm not an expert in this that um, if you're on a split board they're probably heavier than than regular skis touring skis yeah absolutely yeah unfortunately they've yet to work out how to make split boards uh, as light as touring skis uh, Katie, were you going for super light touring equipment then on your trip? Um, I was going, yeah, I did go for super light. I was surprised at how much equipment you needed. And I actually rented the entire lot, apart from boots, from the Intersport in the centre of Chamonix. It's just got everything. So you have to buy your carabiner, obviously, because that's, you know, got to be like fresh and safe and they can't insure you against that. But everything else you can get from Intersport, which is great. Okay, and uh, did you have crampons and need to use crampons at all? Yeah, so we had boot crampons and ski crampons, both of which we used. Um, I think the only thing I didn't use that I brought was an ice screw, which is lucky because I didn't fall in a crevasse. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay. Other than that, I wish I brought less snacks and less clothes because, as Tristan Mm. said, the hearts are grotty and you don't change your T-shirt at the end of the day, so... I don't know how I don't know whether this is oversharing, but um, I did the six days with with uh, three pairs of pants, three pairs of socks, and two base layers. And you basically get to the hut, wash your one base layer that you've been wearing that day in in whatever water there is, put on the clean one, and then dry it in the sun, and then sort of change like that. The guide, uh, for reference, scoffed at that amount of spare clothing because he did the whole thing with two pairs of socks a single pair of pants and a single base layer. So that is apparently how the pros do it. They just smell. <laughs> yeah, well, that fug that you're talking about that you get in the refuges is is definitely uh, noticeable. At least you can spend a lot of your time out, out, outdoors. But even at the top of the mountain, you mentioned those uh, early starts. I mean, people tend to go to bed pretty early on. I know you said people are snoring, so you've got your headphones, uh, your earplugs uh, in. But I think that normally by sort of, eight nine o'clock most people are kind of settling down that was my favorite part of the whole thing actually the kind of camaraderie you get in the huts that grows each night because you tend to see the same people on the same route at each hut like to make sweeping generalizations it's you know you get your different countries kind of in different groups and there was a lot of Icelanders on the route I went on who are noisy lots of fun you know invite you in for wine and teaching you how to play like you know their version of whist and stuff so <laughs> these were normally the latest but yeah earlier than nine I think I kind of you know got into the dormitory way before that yeah and what about you mentioned you know you you, you can be traveling at roughly the same rate as other groups it's one of the things I've noticed before this is when I was ski touring in uh, Morocco there are a lot of different people staying in the refuge but people had different goals for the next day 
And, you know, we were going skiing in, uh, you know, different areas, but they were all going to summit uh, Mount Tubkal. And they were getting up extraordinarily early, which we just didn't really need. And I guess there's probably some people, you said you were getting a bit earlier every day. But that's one of the things when you're in a dorm and there's other people, you know, who are working on a slightly different timetable from you. Did you get any of that at all, Tris? Yeah, I mean, that, that's another another excellent reason to bring earplugs because people are getting up. <laughs> Going, going for, I don't know, going to the toilet in the night, but also, yes, waking up at different times and clattering around, dropping their ice axe on the floor or whatever. So if you do have a slightly later departure time, uh, which actually we didn't, I think the guide, the guide pushed our, our departure time back every day as well to the point where we were waking up at 3.30 for a 4 a.m. departure. Um, but yes, you, you, want to, you want to make sure that if you can sleep in, you, you have the earplugs to be able to do so. And uh, Katie, did you have people like that get some really early starters? Uh, yeah, definitely. In um, the huts that I went on, the more I guess the more keen people. Um, yeah, it's people who put Gore-Tex on in dormitories of thirty people and are swishing about the dormitory or like testing zips. I don't know if they're like waxing them or something, but it you know it sounds like fireworks at three thirty eight. Yeah, yes, when you're when you're trying to well. sleep. Well, uh, you know, I could, uh, I find this so interesting. You know, I haven't done it. Uh, you know, lots of people I speak to, oh, they're really surprised I've never done uh, this uh, sort of thing before. I've kind of run around, you know, done the Tour de Mont Blanc and things like that. But, uh, you know, I'd love to uh, do the oat route. So that's another one. You've already added like Jackson Hole on my list. And now we have the oat route on my list uh, as well. I want to get back to Verbier as well. But that's a great thing. That's why, you know, there's 172 episodes already of the ski podcast because there's so many different things that we can talk about and cover you know in skiing it's really exciting so yeah i'd like love to thank you uh, katie and tristan for sharing uh, all of that and we're just going to move to the uh, close uh, now uh, just briefly on the racing side of things uh, team gb update uh, the towards the end of the season charlotte banks uh, picked up a double gold in the snowboard uh, world cup it's pretty good for her she kind of missed out on the world champs although she did get that team world champs uh, uh, medal uh, and as I'm guessing many listeners to the podcast uh, will know, Michaela Schifrin uh, set a new World Cup uh, record. She picked up her 87th win. I can't recall if she's had her 88th uh, yet, but she's certainly um, broken the record for, uh, for all-time uh, World Cup wins. I do enjoy feedback about the show. I love to know what listeners uh, think. And if you have ideas for features, we've included a few of those before. So uh, please contact me uh, on social at the ski podcast or by email, the ski podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we've had a few comments sent in since the last podcast. Uh, Liam Major. He's been working his way through every single podcast. And he says, uh, I finally caught up with the podcast after starting from the first episode. Uh, the pods seem to get better and better as I progress through them. Uh, once again, thanks for this brilliant uh, podcast. I've truly learned a lot and will continue to listen. So thank you very much, uh, Liam. And I'm glad you're up to date. Uh, Christian just said, uh, keep up the excellent podding. Uh, the best place if you do want to review us is Apple Podcasts. It's a bit of a cliche, but it does help other people uh, find us. And here's a couple of recent reviews. I'd like to thank Paul from Inside Morzine. He said, I love this podcast. It's a shining light that gets me through the week. Informative, educational, and extremely interesting. Keep up the brilliant work. And Duncan SW said, Ian's a great host. Fantastic range of skiing topics and highly useful information on all sorts of things. Highly recommended. So there's 172 now episodes to catch up with. I was looking at the stats. I see uh, over the last year, we've become more international. Uh, 
57% of the listeners are in the UK. And the next biggest countries are the USA, Australia, France, and Canada. And there, there are a lot of other countries on that list. So uh, please do let us know if you're listening from uh, you know further afield. And uh, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, you can always buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. But uh, for now, you can follow me at Skipedia at the podcast at Ski Podcast. I'd like to thank the Three Valleys for sponsoring the show and thank my guest today, Katie. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. And Tristan, thank you. Uh, thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for, um, thanks for having me on. And finally, listener, thank you for joining us. Until next time, goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. Don't forget that if you want to support the podcast, then remember to book your ski hire with Intersport and use the code SKIPODCAST or simply take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Thanks again and have a great winter.